I'm Mark Peterson, and this is Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. Welcome back to the final episode of our four-part series in support of FEMA's Summer Ready Campaign, where we're exploring the effects of extreme heat and how collaboration among local, state, tribal, territorial, and federal partners can lead to more educated communities. Heat and extreme heat continues to impact communities across the globe. We've seen more frequent events and cascading disasters over the past few years. Staying ahead of them requires we review our response plans regularly and adjust as needed, but also think about both short and long-term approaches to ensure our whole community is keeping people safe. To that end, FEMA offers several grants for projects that help prepare for and mitigate risks posed by natural hazards, including extreme temperatures. Today, on this final episode, we'll dive a little deeper into how these grants came to be and how they are being used to address extreme temperatures. All right, so I'm so excited for this final episode of the Summer Ready Campaigns uh, podcast series on extreme heat. I'm joined by Pamela Williams, no stranger to the uh, FEMA podcast, uh, who is the assistant administrator for FEMA's grants program. Uh, Pam, thanks so much. Uh, It's great to see you again. It's great to be here. Thanks, Mark. All right. And then we also have uh, Geralee Bennett, who is the division director for the Hazard Mitigation Assistance Division. Geralee, welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to talk to you. Thank you for having us today, Mark. I'm glad we're making time to discuss this important topic. And it really is because I think it really ties in a lot of the conversations we've had throughout the uh, the summer about extreme heat. We've seen extreme heat situations around the country, around the world, in fact. And uh, I think uh, many people, including our, our friends in the emergency management community, are wondering, well, what do we do? And uh, on this episode, we're going to talk about a, a little bit more on the topic of grants that can uh, be used to address some of these extreme temperatures and the, and the impacts our communities are feeling. And so let's just dive right in. So Pam, can you just uh, recap some of the issues that we're talking about when we refer to extreme temperatures? Sure. Great question. When we talk about extreme temperatures, we're really talking about the day-to-day effects of climate change. A lot of people hear the term climate change and they aren't entirely sure what that means in terms of what we experience in our day-to-day life. But actually, it is things like what you just said, extreme heat, those temperatures that are above 90 degrees Fahrenheit for more than three days in a row, what we've experienced a lot this summer. But it's also extreme cold, even flooding, both generally and in those at-risk coastal areas, drought wildfires, and then, of course, the increased morbidity and mortality due to these conditions. Yeah, and I think um, everyone is struggling or working through um, how to keep their communities safe, how to prepare their individuals. In fact, we talked with uh, California, who is doing uh, a really great effort to um, prepare multi-ethnic communities for the impacts of extreme heat, what they can do to keep themselves safe. But then, of course, we got to talk about how we're going to change the landscape. Uh, and and to do that, there's some things that we're, we've got on the table, these grants. So talk about some of the grants that you're thinking about to address climate change. 
Right, because we know resources help change behavior. So there are, there are a few resources and grant programs that FEMA puts on the table. First is the Emergency Management Performance Grant, so EMPG, which FEMA has allotted more than $355 million in FY23. Because we know that simulating decision-making of these climate scenarios is critical for our emergency managers because they need to prepare for these extreme heat events. So we are actually helping them test the effectiveness of their emergency plans for heat. So FEMA, through our National Exercise Program and funding from our EMPG grant program, provides support to our federal, state, local, tribal, and territorial partners to assess and enhance their response capability, capacity, and training. These funds help our states, locals, tribal nations, and territories develop heat emergency plans, test effectiveness, and train emergency managers and first responders so that they understand their roles and responsibilities. But I'm going to turn it over to Jerry Lee because I know she has some great information about our hazard mitigation assistance grants and how they can actually help address climate change. Thank you, Pam. FEMA will be publishing funding opportunities for our fiscal year 2023 hazard mitigation assistance grant grants in the coming weeks. But in the meantime, I can tell you that we not only obligated $1.78 billion during fiscal year 2022, but we also just announced the final selections for nearly $3 billion in funding that we made available through the Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities and the Flood Mitigation Assistance Grant Programs for our most recent grant cycle. Our grant programs result in mitigation actions that will help reduce risk to include combating extreme heat impact. Mitigation planning breaks the unfortunate cycle of disaster damage, reconstruction, and repeated damage. Hazard mitigation includes long-term solutions that reduce the impact of disasters into the future. So we're going to talk a little bit about the, the different projects that are out there um, that you all are thinking through. But Jerry, before we do... So I love that you brought up uh, the BRIC grants because that was really exciting last week uh, you know, as we're recording this uh, when those were announced. Hazard Mitigation Grant Program, for anybody who's not familiar with it versus the, some of the competitive grants, can you talk through hazard mitigation grants and how they are allocated for, versus some of these other grants that are out there to address climate change? Sure. Um, at FEMA, we have a suite of hazard mitigation assistance grant programs that are available, um, as you said, uh, through different um, through different ways of, of allocating funding. And we have post-disaster hazard mitigation grant program funding that um, is allocated based on a formula. Uh, when the president declares a major disaster in in a state. And for example, for Florida after Hurricane Adalia, um, they will get an allocation of hazard mitigation grant program funding. And they can use it statewide for all hazard mitigation types of projects. We also have our annual grant programs. That includes, as you mentioned, the BRIC program, Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities, and the Flood Mitigation Assistance Program, but also our newest, Safeguarding Tomorrow Revolving Loan Fund capitalization grants, which we um, first published a funding opportunity in last December, and we will be announcing uh, the first set of allocations for those in the coming weeks. 
We're trying to make hazard mitigation as accessible as possible to as many communities as possible. And so it's great that we have a range of different programs to meet different needs. And I can tell you, uh, being a person who works in a region, we are doing it uh, every day. It's amazing the partnerships that are built through these grant programs. And, And thanks for kind of walking through all the different kinds because we hear the headline or the the press release that goes out about the BRIC program, and it's a big number. But when you put them all in totality, it's a really big number and can make a really big impact. So talk about some of the projects that these grants can be used for when we're thinking about extreme heat. Absolutely. Uh, the projects we see that assist with mitigation, mitigating the effects of extreme temperatures all seek to reduce the impact and to help save lives, protect infrastructure, reduce energy demands, and improve work productivity and community comfort. Uh, I'd like to give you a couple of examples. Nature-based solutions, which is a term of art that we use, uh, particularly in the BRIC program, that can include adding green roofs in urban situations to reduce the impact of heat um, and um, help the the building system to to function better. Increasing the tree canopy in urban areas, but also uh, in open areas in rural areas as well. Adding urban trees in strategic locations, such as around buildings or shading the pavement, urban forests and green streets. We have a couple of real world examples that I'd like to share if I can. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, we're funding both infrastructure improvements and nature-based solutions uh, to enhance community resilience to multiple hazards. Tulsa and the region are extremely vulnerable to increasingly intense heat waves and flood risk, making infrastructure enhancements and nature-based solutions vital to the health and safety of the city's population. The city of Tulsa has a systems-based approach to improving resilience to flooding, heat, and water quality. And to reduce flooding, the city will make infrastructure enhancements along Fulton Creek by increasing the capacity of the storm sewer system and constructing two detention ponds and culverts. Stormwater runoff prevention will be enhanced by using this nature-based solution, but it also involves adding trees, which will reduce heat and limit development in the area. And these improvements will result in a more attractive, usable, environmentally sensitive, healthier, and safer community. Can I stop you right there on that Tulsa example? You know, one of the things we've learned throughout the the summer is that we have these extreme heat events. It's not just about extreme heat. It's followed by intense rainfall, uh, some major severe storms. So it's really uh, fascinating when you're tackling this problem to think about retention, water retention, as, as a need you know, as you experience these events. But you you had another uh, example, King County, right? Yeah, King County is using their grant to do a strategic plan, uh, looking at mapping extreme heat and also developing a plan for how to address the impact of extreme heat in some of their disadvantaged areas. the, The plan will cover the cities of Seattle, Kent, Renton, and Auburn. And these urban areas are especially prone to high temperatures due to a combination of hard surfaces, buildings, roads, limited vegetation, and heat-producing factors like car use and industrial activity. The research on the relationship between temperature and land use in King County finds that temperatures can vary between city blocks by as much as 23 degrees Fahrenheit due to differences in the amount of paved surfaces and tree canopy. So this project will prioritize benefits to low-income neighborhoods, communities of color, and other vulnerable communities in King County that experience a confluence of multiple inequities. 
I want to go back to something that Pam brought up, the uh, EMPG program, the uh, Emergency Management Performance Grants. Um, are there some examples that we can talk about uh, from uh, from those grants uh, that, that are being used for extreme heat? Absolutely, because we know that planning and exercising can be a critical, critical step to getting to a successful project. So related to extreme heat and temperatures, we're now seeing government jurisdiction incorporating wonderful things like extreme heat and cold into their planning documents for their agencies. And so EMPG is focused on risk reduction programs. So planning, training, and carrying out exercises that help close capability gaps that have been identified at the state, local, tribal, or territorial level through their preparedness review. And one great example is another one from Oklahoma, where they use their EMPG funding to build upon existing school security programs to develop a plan for how to protect students and their schools in the event of a natural disaster like a tornado. Through this effort, the state developed a program to train school officials, building engineers, and architects to evaluate the school's structural safety and provide recommendations for improvement. Yeah, I mean, those projects are are really fantastic. And, um, and I'm sure all, a, a lot of hard work went into it, but specifically a lot of hard work in the area of planning for them. And so, Jerry, I wonder if you could talk about some of the ways that mitigation planning can help communities address the impacts. Absolutely. You know, mitigation planning is the foundation of community resilience. It's really important to understand risk and develop actionable community-driven plans as a fundamental step to tackling extreme temperatures and natural hazards more broadly. State, local, tribal, and territorial governments can use community planning efforts, including hazard mitigation planning, to engage residents, businesses, and partners in efforts to design projects and initiatives that can reduce risk and build resilience. Partners can bring resources, data, and additional funding to the planning process. So it's really important to reach out to the private sector and non-governmental organizations in your community. Partners may also represent underserved communities and vulnerable populations to ensure a participatory process and accountability. As communities learn more about the current and future impacts of extreme heat and cold, it is important to update hazard mitigation plans as they are the foundation for determining if a project is eligible for FEMA mitigation funding. FEMA mitigation funding fosters greater community resilience and can also be used for other planning-related activities, which may include mapping heat islands, such as the King County example, to support vulnerability analysis for the hazard mitigation plan. You hit on a, a, a topic there that uh, is really important, which is the eligibility considerations. And so can communities' hazard mitigation plans play a role in sort of determining the eligibility for FEMA mitigation funding and other, and other grants? All of our programs require that uh, the community have a hazard mitigation plan that, that covers the jurisdiction and that the project aligns with the plan. It doesn't mean the specific project has to be listed in the plan, but it needs to be in keeping with the plan. So that's why it's important for communities to keep updating their plans and looking at how the risk is evolving in their particular area. Pam, does hazard mitigation plans play a role in uh, non-mitigation grants as well? Absolutely. They can be incredibly helpful when applying for other grant programs because you're identifying risk and identifying ways to draw down that risk. But in terms of other eligible projects, 
hazard mitigation grant programs can be used to fund all sorts of projects that fall into a number of categories related to the overall resilience of a community. So in addition, we've talked about developing or updating a FEMA-approved mitigation plan to help states, local governments, tribes, and territories identify risks and plan for ways to reduce vulnerabilities from current and future hazards. Certainly, those very important planning-related activities related to updating FEMA-approved hazard mitigation plans that are involved in integrating risk assessments and mitigation strategies um, and information from these mitigation plans, building capacity through technical assistance, and evaluating the adoption of risk reduction ordinances. One of my personal favorites is retrofitting existing buildings to make them less susceptible to damage from a variety of natural hazards. Even purchasing hazard-prone property and completely removing people and structures out of harm's way. Also, utility and infrastructure retrofits that reduce the risk of failure caused by natural hazards. Very common drainage improvement projects that reduce the potential for flood damage. Slope stabilization projects to reduce risk to people and structures. Developing and adopting hazard mitigation plans, which are required for state, local, tribal, and territorial governments to receive funding for their mitigation projects. Aquifer storage for recovery, floodplain and stream restoration, flood diversion and storage, and even green infrastructure methods to reduce the impacts of flood and drought. And then even reducing risk of wildfire by removing and reducing flammable vegetation and hazardous fuel. So lots of examples of eligible mitigation activities that help build community resilience against climate change. We've spent a few minutes here talking about some of the many grant programs that are available to tackle this very large problem. But this is also such an exciting time right now um, to be in in the emergency management community and the resources that FEMA is putting out there. Um, This is a really great time. So this podcast is a bit like skipping a stone across the surface of a lake. Uh, It goes really, really deep. And so, Jerry Lee, knowing that we can't get to everything, Um, Are there some additional resources or tools or even guidance that FEMA is uh, providing to support communities, you know, as they're thinking through planning and implementing projects, uh, you know, specifically to extreme temperatures, but also to some of the extreme climate changing impacts? There are so many resources out there. I think sometimes it can be a little overwhelming, uh, even uh, EPA, NOAA, uh, a lot of our partners are are posting really good resources on their websites. Um, but I encourage folks to look at ready.gov. We have some information there about extreme heat very specifically. Um, and also uh the the um, the FEMA data digest, the guide for alert and warnings. There are a lot of really good um, materials on FEMA.gov. If I may, Mark, I'd like to mention a couple of other projects. Pam mentioned um, how important protecting buildings and and facilities are. One thing we haven't mentioned today is a very simple measure: reflective coating on pavement. Um, for both roads, parking lots, 
also uh, rooftops, uh, particularly on commercial buildings. So those are a couple of kind of project types that uh, I think folks should look at. I also just wanted to mention, because you mentioned the importance of uh, water retention, and I was describing the ex the example of Tulsa in a more rural area, uh, but I was recently on vacation in Amsterdam, and I saw examples in real life of a couple of projects that we have recently selected for approval that, that haven't been fully constructed yet, both in New York City and in Washington, D.C., where they are going to put stormwater retention built into playground areas, sunken playground areas, so that when there's when there are storms, those playgrounds can actually help to pull in and retain water and bring it down into the drainage system. And I saw examples of that on, on playgrounds in uh, the Netherlands. And it was really just amazing to see that kind of engineering and practice. Sort of like dual use purposes, I, I suppose. Yeah. Exactly. And in both New York City and D.C., these are going to be in um, areas with uh, affordable housing. So it's going to be a really great resource for the community. Pam, so many of uh, the members of the emergency management community, and in, fa in fact, I was in uh, northern Indiana last week and, and talking to a roundtable of emergency managers, and so many of them are, um, you know, one, two, three-person shops. And, uh, and so the idea of moving through the grants system is probably overwhelming to many of them. I, at least that's some of the feedback that we heard. Uh, you know, what advice do you have for uh, people who are wanting to explore maybe big projects, systematic projects, um, and maybe for the both of you, um, what, what what's your piece of advice? Work together. We all know that mitigation projects, just like disasters, don't stop at an arbitrary border. So one of the best approaches you can take is regionalizing a project. And this is something that Administrator Criswell often preaches, is how can we approach these things on a regional basis? So partner together, work together to approach resilience in a comprehensive way. Because when we look at risk in a comprehensive way and we approach it comprehensively, we reach comprehensive solutions that reach far beyond our community borders and actually turn into best practices, but also sharing those best practices. We know that our emergency management organization, our local government intergovernmental organizations are constantly looking for those best practices, those lessons learned to share and replicate. And FEMA's constantly looking for them. And I know Jerry Lee's team has done a great job of sharing some of those great, great best practices. And those are available online too. So I'll turn it over to Jerry Lee. That's right, Pam. You know, we have case studies on FEMA.gov that can be cross-cutting, not just for the hazard mitigation grant programs, but also for our public assistance and, and other resources across FEMA. I also wanted to mention that um, we have the climate mapping for resilience tool. It's called the climber <laughs> tool um, and the resilience analysis and planning tools. These are really great free geographic information system based tools that can help communities with their planning process and they don't require a lot of expensive software to make use of uh, these tools to look at their risk in their community. And um, finally, I wanted to mention that there's a resilience toolkit on climate.gov uh, that definitely is a great resource for communities. Thanks for listening to this episode of Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. 
If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, or have ideas for future episodes, visit us at fema.gov slash podcast.